Bega Valley Shire Library acknowledges and pays respect to the traditional custodians of the lands, waterways and airspace of the Shire in which we live, work and play, the Yuan and Monaro peoples. Hope, Loss, Resilience is a podcast series exploring how people stay hopeful, how they deal with loss and the resilience that binds the Bega Valley. It focuses on community experiences during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, I'm Craig Garrett, a library officer with the Beaker Valley Shire Library. In early 2023, I began interviewing people across the Beaker Valley on the far south coast of New South Wales about their experiences during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic. Each episode of Hope, Loss, Resilience explores a different theme. Fire, health, education, family, community, business. In this episode, we hear about communities from across the Shire. In quick succession, the Bega Valley faced drought, fire, the pandemic and floods. We know the story of COVID-19 isn't a single narrative, but a compounding, cumulative set of events and responses. We know community comes in all shapes and sizes, and we know that central to resilience is people collectively doing what they can to support each other. These stories of loss and resilience illustrate the different ways people in the Bega Valley remain connected and hopeful. As this is our final episode, it brings a number of threads together, which means it's a tad longer than some of the other episodes in the series. First, we hear from local poet Shona Hawkes with her piece about the beautiful bushland here on Ewan Country. Forests have their own time. Forests have their own time. Breathe slow. A pulse of water travels up and down a long spine. Tall trees carry rivers. The tiniest of insects turn dead leaves and fallen twigs to soil. Fungi carry food and news between giants and their kin. Here is a tree that bleeds. Red and thick and sweet, offering itself to yellow-bellied gliders. Waddle appear trying to heal the forest broken edges. Bracken bend and wave to the breeze. Birds squawk and swoop, a young goanna searching for eggs. Kangaroos emerge and then fade back into the brush. An echidna scratches at the strange monolith of a termite mound. My name is Vivian Harris and I live in Bega and I moved here just almost five years ago and I moved down here with my daughter. But it was a deliberate decision to move to Bega because we're both very aware of climate change and so we actually chose Bega as a place that is probably safer than other places. When COVID first began, my life very much revolved around climate activism Every Friday, I would sit outside the local politician's office with my Climate Action Now signs, and also I was working casually at the bulk food store. The other thing, when we went into lockdown, my daughter and granddaughter moved in with me and my other daughter so that we were a group of four rather than separated because we knew we weren't going to be able to visit. So we figured it was better to live together. (laughs) 
My name's Wendy Greeley. Um, I, I come from the Candelow area. I'm currently the Deputy Director of Nursing and Midwifery and have worked in New South Wales Health for over 30 years. One of the great loves that I've had here is volunteering with the Candelow Arts Society with their local festivals and assisting them to set up events. For me, it's the connection to community through uh, groups such as that and the social social contacts, I guess, at work. There was a lot of hope. There was a lot of hope at work pre-COVID. To keep it in context, we had just come out of the fires. So we actually knew we had a lot of work ahead of us to support our community in recovering or walking alongside them in their recovery. We had just been through quite a challenging time. It was only a short time from December to March. I recall feeling um, feelings around absolute disbelief for what I was seeing on the on through media and regarding the speed at which this COVID thing was taking off around the world. But grateful at the point uh, that it hadn't reached Australia. I don't think I really fathom that it would make it across the waters into Australia. This was an overseas international issue, not an Australian issue. We're exposed to the graphic nature of the pandemic through the media and the unimaginable impact on our international colleagues, so their nurses, their doctors, their mums, their dads, you were starting to see that. So uh, that really had a big impact on me. It was a real lot to take in at the, at the time. Some aspects as far as response were familiar in the previous old hospital I worked alongside a woman named Gwen Kellen and she was our infection prevention officer. And her and I prepared this SARS pandemic response. I'm really grateful to to that time spent with Gwen, back in 2009 that was, because it laid down the principles for me, the principles of responding to such an event, but certainly not at the same (laughs) magnitude as what this had. My name's Ray Kennedy, and I am in Candelow on Ewan Country. I'm originally from Canada and fell in love with an Australian, which brought me to this country, and he fell in love with a block of land, which brought us to here. Something that I am conscious of is that I had a deep longing to find community here, and I think community here in this village is both one of the greatest gifts that is very easy to find at some level in coming here. And I found it very quickly to some degree, but inevitably takes time to find in that deeper, meaningful way. And I can see in how I have brought myself to this village, that that is a major place of meaning and need in me to feel known that just takes time but I have come to really understand that about myself and to work for that in this small village my name's Caitlin Malloy I live in Buckajo just out of Bega I moved here for community specifically queer farmers so I moved here for people farming community, some queer community and proximity to the beach and oysters 
Yeah, oysters were one of the things on my checklist when I was looking for what country town to move to. (laughs) So before COVID, I was living communally with some friends on a property and I think the test of the fires and the stress of that, multiple evacuations, we were not fire affected at home but, you know, it was a huge time and we did a lot of intense prep work and evacuation and I met a lot of people in that time like there's a lot of people I know around the valley because I met them when we were evacuated together in the same house in Bega so for me that was a real testing time that really showed me quite quickly that it was where I wanted to be this is the area these are the people I want to be around in those crises which will continued that was kind of my feeling at that time so it was really hard and stressful but the community coming together and that kind of being so recent when COVID started I and a lot of the people directly around me felt like we had a really strong community care ethic and looking out for each other checking on people I live with someone um, with terminal cancer who is on pretty hardcore immune suppressing drugs and lots of other things but also I'm just in community with a lot of people who are sick or disabled or chronically ill so it's something I was conscious of from the beginning. Yeah helping people where that was needed and thinking about those things so to me that it kind of ran one into the other. When the fires came my partner and I decided to stay and that was a very big but clear decision so all through the fires I was here on this property and it was a very intense time (laughs) it's an understatement but one of the things that happened for me during the fires which has bearing on the pandemic is that come the first week of January when everything had gone up to the nth degree and um, the car was packed. We had our systems in place. I had done all of the practical things related to home and protecting the space that I could do to prepare for the inevitable. And my attention pivoted to my community. And so in early January, I focused my energy and my my emotional space really to how do I care for my community during this time. Initially that was sort of creating this spreadsheet of like who has stayed in the village and what is their fire plan and how do we know if they're home or if they've decided to leave and who's left and trying to create this network of communication. But then very quickly that shifted to what I know best to do in the world both for myself and as a member of community is is to turn to the arts as a language when all else fails. And so I reached out to the town hall committee for the local Candelo town hall and got permission to access this, at that point, abandoned cafe space that was connected to the hall. So I got the keys to that space and I got access to some social media platforms at a community level and just started putting this call out. Two mornings a week just said, this space is going to be open, come have a cup of tea, come create in the face of destruction. And we called it Make and Mend. And I started just giving that my focus. Whenever there was enough space to take a breath from immediate fire threat, 
I just was trying to hold space for community in a creative way. And I didn't know whether that would last a month or six months or it didn't matter. There wasn't a plan. It was just a, that was my crisis response. And what happened was that people came and people kept coming and some people came just to talk and not be alone. Some people just came for the cup of tea. Some people came for the distraction. So for January, February, March of 2020, I sort of just gave all that my energy that the fire, you know, eventually the rain came and the fires broke and I didn't really have space to deal with my processing of the fires. I just pivoted it onto caring for community and I had a ticket to go visit my family in Canada in April 2020. And so I just thought, Ray, like just get through till April you have enough in you to care for your community for three months right now, and then you'll go and crash in the arms of your family and let them take care of you. My name is Casey Hill, and I'm the founder of Funhouse Studio here in Bega. I also manage the Bega Multicultural Center. I'm in the business of bringing people together. So with Funhouse, primarily my responsibilities are just to support young people. We do creative arts here, so uh, our focus is on employment um, in the creative arts industries. And obviously with Bega Multicultural Center, I'm working with migrants post the fires. We really needed to come together. And then COVID happened. So I felt anxiety, the tension, the discomfort, the fear. A lot felt super uncertain. That was kind of this general feeling, but in the community, I think, um, to be honest, I think we were okay for a while there. There was a real feeling of relief. We had the fires and you think, gosh, what am I doing living in the bush, you know, out here and this, all this bushland and the fire and the weather and climate change and you're worried. And then the next minute there's a global pandemic and you're hiding in the bush. And so it was really, it felt safe. We felt pretty lucky to be where we were. Next, we hear about how the pandemic impacted families and communities. We also reflect on the gaps COVID exposed in our health systems and the challenges that restrictions placed on care and close relationships. Just a heads up, at about the 30-minute mark, there's a bit of a swear. My name's David Bradford. I'm 81 years of age. I'm living in the area of Toowoomba, which is the far, far south coast of New South Wales. There's a lot of nice people here and we like a bit of a family. The history of my brother Graham is that Graham has got some intellectual disabilities and he lived in Melbourne in a special home. He's got a massive collection of records. He would go to the brothers and Lawrence and they built a studio desk for him and he would take it across to the nursing home. I went there with him one day and it was amazing to see the effect on the residents, they'd start playing the music and all of a sudden instead of sitting in their chair, they'd be up and dancing around. I mean, if his mother was alive and she saw how Graham had developed like that, she would have been very happy. For whatever reason, the uh, state government got rid of their responsibility with the this housing choices and they gave it to a private company. And what happened, they, of course, the first thing that happens is they cut back on staff. So things started to go bad because they weren't caring for Graham the way he should be. 
and he got crook and he ended up with a twisted bowel and he had a, an operation. He was very ill. Here he is in the Austin Hospital in Melbourne and we couldn't go and see him with COVID. We weren't even allowed to cross the border and it was a pretty stressful time. You know, it was a real tough time for the people in the hospital, you know. I mean, I, I can understand, you know, the, why I couldn't go in there and see him. We managed to have a computer discussion with the social worker at the hospital. Graham wouldn't eat. He's, I'd talk to him on the phone. He'd say, not eating, it's poison, it's poison, all this sort of thing. Anyway, she went out and bought some McDonald's and he started eating again. <laughs> but we said we want him up here. And I'd, I'd been to the local nursing home in Eden and they said they would place him if he came up here. And uh, the next step was getting him up here. I did catch COVID and I was very sick. I had really been concentrating on other people's risk. So I was really unwell for maybe six weeks or two months, very fatigued, very bad asthma, called an ambulance one time, but I came through okay. All the people who I live with have had it now, yeah, including the one who is very ill, but she was able to access the antivirals, so I think that was quite helpful. But I do have two friends who I kind of grew up with who are my age, about 35, who both have long COVID and are basically bed-bound, use wheelchairs from infections in March 2020. One actually is not totally, she didn't even ever get a test. It was so early in the piece. She was in the States. So she's kind of not sure, but the timeline really looks like that's long COVID. So that is, even though they're not people in this area, that really informs my choices around COVID and especially because they're people I've known for over 20 years and were previously very like me, demographically and age-wise and health and everything. And that's my kind of ethic, try to apply, like not just what would this be like for me or how do, how did that affect me, but, yeah, thinking a bit bigger, zooming out and centering people who are more at risk or just, yeah, have different experience to me. When Graham was well... He didn't want to come up here. He was happy in Melbourne. He was he was he had a life. He had a good life. And then he got ill. We had COVID, and all of a sudden he became a bit scrambled because he was really very ill. So this social worker, she organised for him to come up on the plane. Oh, he was thin as he, you know. He, Graham was a food lover, and he used to carry a bit of weight. But he was, oh, he's like a skeleton. When he came up here, he was worried about being in Eden because there's sharks in the water and all this sort of thing. But if you were to go and see Graham now, he says it's a good place up here. I go and see him twice a week and I take him out and he's happy now and I'm happy. We're happy because he's up here and we can look after him. All the nurses like him. He's got a good nature in his room. I set up a, a, a sound system with a, a 
nice turntable and I had a entertainment cabinet which I had in my shed which I modified to put in his room and I fitted in there and everything's on it and he's got cupboards and all that sort of thing and we also had a, another wall unit freestanding wall unit to hold all these records the maintenance guy helped me put it in the room all the records he's got he's got heaps of them and he plays them he plays them every when i'm not there he plays his music and he's got his tastes are good he plays all sorts of music one of his favorite things to do which it was in melbourne was to go to the op shops and look for records he loves it doing that yeah and his favorite shop at the moment is the Salvos and Bigger. There's an, old, an elderly gentleman that works here and he looks forward to seeing Graham when I go in there. <laughs> he, he even bought in some records for him. That's the sort of person he is. Hi, I'm Lib. I'm heading into my late 30s and towards the beginning of my 30s, I was working in a law firm in the city, as was my partner. And we were both pretty burnt out. So we quit our jobs, packed up our stuff and lived out of the car for a year and a half. During that time, we had the real honor of house sitting the Brogo Permaculture Gardens. We just fell in love with the area and ended up moving here early 2019. And we set up in a rental in Upper Brogo. So my partner and I evacuated on the night um, before the fire that swept through Cabago and we ended up at a friend's place at the Bend Eco neighborhood. My partner had just lost his family home up north and had just been up there with his family kind of surveying the damage that you know the heartbreak that that was and then came home and then the same night I think we evacuated. The place where we were living was was really heavily affected the owners who we also lived with, they were in another house, lost their home. They lost everything. Somehow, miraculously, the cottage that we were living in made it, despite the shed and the garage and the water tanks and everything else going around it. There were dying animals everywhere, desperate for water and food. We were obviously quite affected really shaken for quite a long time after that and we're spending a lot of time going in between Bega and Brogo, feeding animals, doing water drops, just checking on the place and yeah and then in the background I have a disabled brother who has Down syndrome and I'm one of his primary people. I've been responsible for his care for several years now and the place where he was living was coming to an end and we were in the process of setting up a new house for him but that was that's a very difficult thing to do to train uh, recruit and train staff and move people with disabilities at the beginning of a pandemic so this pandemic hit and we weren't living in our house we were worried about bringing more people to bend so we Drove up to Sydney, I think, the day the pandemic was announced and pretty much in the space of a day or two put my brother's things into storage, 
collected him, brought him back down to the Bega Valley so that he would be safe because obviously he's immunocompromised and we were quite worried and moved back to Brogo without, I think we might have had some solar power at that stage, but definitely no running water. And then the whole world went into lockdown, I think. Well, we went into lockdown a day or two after that had happened. And yeah, it was a very strange time to be a carer and dealing with the impacts of the fires and then having this new phenomenon just bring so much uncertainty into our lives. We were a very vulnerable community and that concerned me the most. During the fires, I played a pivotal role in the hospital disaster response leading the hospital logistics team and working in the local emergency operations centre. I was very aware of the impact on community and its vulnerabilities. Whilst I can recall many anxiety-provoking thoughts, they just seemed to dissipate at the time as I knew I had a job to do. And what drove me was the strength and resilience of this community and the local emergency operations team. I wasn't infallible though, and I had many a private moment driving home from work or an early sipping a cup of tea looking out the window. I was worried about colleagues. I have family in emergency and health services, vulnerable family members, including a disabled grandchild that I couldn't see for what seemed like eternity. And certainly there were moments where I would shed a tear or three. Do we have the emotional and physical energy to not only get through this, but support the whole community and get through it together? From my experience, it was difficult for many that were alone. So, you know, they had no family, they're unable to source, uh, you know, source groceries, they were isolated. And I think when you would look them in the eye, you would see this absolute fear. Because I imagine, you know, I've got all this information, they're seeing what's on the television, they're trying to process the information from the uh, from what we're providing, which can be quite confusing when you're getting so much and not understanding what is happening or that sort of thing. So you, you could see that fear in people, so you had to be very reassuring. So on that note, as a community member, people would, you know, ask you, they'd text you, I think I've got it, what do I do, you know? So you'd have to, you know, refer them to the, the source of truth, which will be the New South Wales Health Information financially you know you've seen the financial impact on it it was you could see that people were out of work uh, and that's tough and I see this community as a rich community not in money but I see them as a rich community in a lot of things but it was the first time I seen the poverty in the community too it was quite often heartbreaking it was it was heartbreaking and um I don't know how you get to the point of processing some of this information. Um, can you be traumatised? Can you be not think about it? What triggers it? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where I actually found the energy to keep on going. I suspect it was some of it was or a lot of it was from the team and relationships that we had within our team to actually look out for one another. 
because we knew that we were in a vulnerable spot. But we also knew when the community looked at you, they looked at you for some answers. They looked at you for support. You've got the information. You can do the test. You can reassure me. You had to respect and you, and you had to lead it and say, yes, you're, we're going to be okay. Let's, you know, we can do this and, and keep that sort of half glass thing sort of happening. Um, but also be aware that it can be very different. Eventually, we saw that maybe the healthcare system was okay, but in terms of job security for our people here, oh gosh, what a, what a, sorry, but a shit show to have bushfires and then COVID in a regional community that depends on tourism for two years, two horrendous years, even before then in Tathra. I just, that was probably the biggest impact was then realizing that I had job security, luckily, but a lot of people in our regions were very negatively impacted. Uh, yeah, it, it, it really, that's the other thing, right? Because we're talking about tangible things like our being sick or losing work. But in terms of like everybody's mental health, in particular young people, uh, it was, it's, it's been hard to watch um, because it feels like all they know and to see young people just kind of bunker down and not leave the house, but then not be able to get out of that once things are, you know, back to normal, quote unquote, has been hard to watch. And the, the anxiety and the stress levels and the, the worry about, well, what's possible? What does the future hold, you know? And so we pivoted to a digital art platform. So um, focusing on using, um, you know, skills, digital art skills, they use these devices to communicate with their friends. It's far from void of human connection. And not only that, but there is still um, employment and creativity in these, you know, uh, media. So uh, I was really happy that we had those tools. You know, I had been coming back and forth to Australia and making home here since... 2012, 2013. And it wasn't until 2020 when the borders closed and I couldn't go to be with my people back in Canada, that the full reality of what it means to migrate across the world sunk in, that all of the fear of what it means to be separated from the people you love most in the world sunk in. And so it was a deep time of unraveling me. <laughs> yeah, of having to face those fears, find my way through them, surrender to what I couldn't control. Like, and none of this happened gracefully. It was profoundly challenging. And again, it was sort of like, almost like when I first heard of the pandemic and I was like, I don't have the capacity for that. All of the big cultural talk around the pandemic and the numbers and will there be a vaccine and when and all of that was like, I don't, I don't have the capacity for that. All I have the capacity for is to feel all of the grief and like, and grieving the fire, like all of a sudden I didn't have a distraction. So all of the stuff from the fires came then too, because I didn't have, I didn't have anything to distract me from having to face it. So it was a long season of sitting with the grief and the learning from the bushfires and then the grief and the reckoning with my migration 
all the while, not just caring for community, but being cared for by community. It was, <laughs> I am no saint in this. Like I was held by community and I received more than I gave through that. But that was a, that was a lifeline that kept me floating. be hard to find hope in an increasingly unpredictable world, and hope can't erase the real and enduring hardships many people face. In this section, we hear reflections on what personal skills the pandemic uncovered for some, and the power that comes from connection to place and to each other. We hear how people's values are inspiring them to craft a future that is more resilient, a little richer, a little stronger, and a little more hopeful. Everything we do helps. Everything we do gains something for someone. Every time we stop a transmission of COVID, we're saving someone, even if it's a short time. You know, you have to feel that what you do matters. Every bit of carbon that I don't put into the atmosphere is buying time for someone or something somewhere. That's why I do it, because otherwise, how do you live with yourself? Every day that we don't actually look at the truth of what this pandemic is really about, which is a mass disabling event, This is not a cold. This is a disease that causes damage to every part of your body, including your brain. This is a disease that has, for the first time since the Chinese famine, dropped world life expectancy. And there's no reason to believe that it's going to change unless we change. That's why we wear masks. We're not just protecting ourselves, we're protecting our customers, you know. We're protecting them. We have the air filters, big, you know, to clean the air. We keep the windows open as much as possible. Eventually, people are going to realise that things are really bad and they're going to look for solutions, I hope, if they're not choosing to distract themselves with conspiracy theories. And we need to have people with skills to show what we could do instead. That's one of the lovely things about the Bega Valley is there are so many people with the skills that we need. The permaculture movement down here is quite big. There are people who know how we need to live and are modelling it and living it and I'm hoping that that can be like yeast and when we need to change, we can look at that, look at those people and, and use those skills. When I got COVID, I will say I got it at work. I was wearing a mask, but just the kind of disposable medical one, not an N95 mask. And so I think that has really informed my decision-making around it as well. I think that the diversity in opinion within membership actually really feels representative of the diversity of opinion within our customer base. Our customers include many people who are still wearing N95 masks every time they come in, people who, I mean, even today someone came in and was like, why are you still wearing a mask? Like people are very emotional and angry about it still. We did a customer survey. We, we received quite a bit of feedback from people who, for whatever reason, really um, upset about our mask wearing even though we're not asking them to like about our decision to people who don't think the pandemic is real um, a lot of anti-vax stuff a lot of pretty deep conspiracy theory stuff I have to monitor our notice board outside because we get some pretty wild conspiracy theory pamphlets put up there just things like that so a full cross-section 
of our local area. Anecdotally, there are people who say they won't shop here anymore, but plenty of people still do shop here and plenty of people thank us for still wearing masks or for looking after the community. When I first heard mention of COVID, like I just, I was not in the news cycle. I was just living right here on the ground. I remember saying out loud, like, I don't have the capacity to think about it. That was my response. I was like, I actually have no room in me. I have no room to think about that. So I'm just putting that over there. I'm full. I'm completely full. And two weeks later, as part of my community care efforts, I'd organized a open mic poetry night. It was sort of like a let's come together bring a poem, doesn't matter if you're a poet, bring your favorite poem. Like we just had cakes and coffee and and we packed the town hall cafe space and it was amazing. And I just remember sitting there like just being like, yeah, this is it. Like I don't know what COVID-19 is, but I know what this is. Like this is my village and like we're coming through something and we're here. And that was the last night we gathered. Yeah, restrictions were coming down the pipe and like it was all just... And so it went from sort of like, I don't have room for that. And so it's just staying over there because I'm, I don't even have room to process fire. This village is just everything right now until I collapse in my family's arms on the other side of the world, which obviously didn't happen either. It would just happened really fast as it did for everybody. But I just remember being sort of in denial and then sitting in this place where work was gone all income was gone the arms of my family were gone and everything i'd been pouring myself into which was caring for my community all of a sudden i didn't know how to do that either the ways that i'd been showing up by holding this space twice a week by organizing these events to bring people in after the fires i wasn't allowed to do that either i was really lost I think another thing that probably is relevant for what's come out of all of this is our relationships. Relationships aren't easy. Relationships aren't easy to build in communities sometimes. It takes it takes effort. It takes us both coming to the table. And here we came to the table, you know, our relationships with our residential aged care facility, our relationships with our vulnerable communities, our relationships with general practitioners, not to mention the relationships within our units from one unit to another. Uh, we really had to rely on each other. You had to know what you were doing. I had to know what I was doing and I had to know how I was going to get X to you and, and all this. So I think there's been a big shift in, in, in that, you know, and those relationships continue where we're constantly, you know, working together to try and improve the care we've done good we've we've learned a lot of lessons it wasn't easy and I think when fear steps into a relationship we all respond a little bit differently but if we keep that openness and and at times we did I think there's room to sort of build on it and and keep it going so you know hopefully 
because the relationships to me is what it's all about the relationships that we're building and experience you have to be open with it sometimes ruthlessly honest which in this situation wasn't easy, but sometimes we had to be very ruthlessly honest with the community, uh, with each other, and that takes a lot to be able to do that in that setting. The immediate things I remember doing at a community level with the people that had been gathering in that community that was building, I didn't want to give up on my belief that in times of crisis, community was still called to be together, that that was exactly what we were doing during the fires. And so if we could do it then, there had to be a way to do it now. And so in that respect, what I did was propose that we create an email list, not social media because not everybody used it. And I committed to sending out a poem and a creative prompt every week. And it was an open list. So anybody could share it and join it. Poetry wasn't a big part necessarily of that community that was gathering, but it's a big thing for me. And I really believe in stories and poetry as both medicine and as gifts that give us language when we don't have the words. And so I needed poetry. And so all I need to do, all I knew to do was to give what I knew I needed myself. And I kept doing that for a couple of years. So that became this thread. So we pivoted from an in-person support network to an email thread, but that truly became a thread. And there's people that joined that poem and prompt. That's what we called it, poem and prompt email list that never had come in person, that didn't know anyone, but that, you know, in a couple of years later would send an email saying like, I never went to make amends. I don't know anybody else in this community, but I just want you to know this was a lifeline for me through the pandemic. This was my connection to community. There's people on that email list who only in the last six to eight months started to leave the house again. So I didn't understand what that was at the time. You know, it was just a response. But so that was again, like a response that just grew. Hope relies on action. Hope is an active thing. It's radical. It's a way of living, which to me is making sure I'm out in nature, making sure I'm exercising, making sure I'm spending lots of time with my family, making sure I'm doing work that I think is worthwhile, which I do, like working here at Candelo Bulk Whole Foods. That is work that is needed for a sustainable future. I'm hoping that we can be more nimble than the supermarkets. The supermarkets only have three days worth of food and they're very prone to supply chain issues. What I'm hoping is that if we can increase our local suppliers of food, that we can be nimble enough in a crisis to keep feeding people. That's one of the reasons I work here, is to be a resource for the bigger valley. So I just align all my values to what I know is necessary, which includes wearing a mask, which includes meeting people outside. The only way you can actually live with it is to align everything you can with your with your values of what, what you know is needed. On a practical level, I've worked in the community, I've volunteered with the Art Society and such. 
you know, putting a festival together, which means erecting a tent, putting up a, you know, a stall, working with council around road closure, that sort of stuff, and having input into that. So I had this sort of transfer of skills that I didn't know I had that were really worthy during this situation. We were often showered with chocolates to keep us going. People were generous. Dr John would bring morning tea whenever we were set up in Marimbula. Warwick would provide delicious salad rolls when we worked in Bermagui for lunch. Hudson's Cafe provided refreshments when we were working at Sir. And community members, be it the fireys, be anyone, they would just drop us off a treat. That actually meant a lot, something to keep us going. It was just awesome. Ian Campbell and Jen Hunt from the ABC. Uh, Ian would do these interview updates over at the hospital and they were helping us facilitate the communication out to the community and get that message out and helping us to allay the fears in the community and disseminating the information quickly because it was coming so quick. We band together. You see that with the fires too in small communities. You have to come together. So from that, maybe a stronger sense of who we are as a community can come from that. Just building our identity around our collective accountability and support of each other that, yeah, you can talk about youth work. You can talk about migrant work. You know, I work with Aboriginal community in my work supporting migrants. I had lots of people in calling in distress and It was sad to see the division happening, but you know, you can talk about us as being in these silos, but we need each other. We all desperately need each other. And I really hope that's true moving forward. You've been listening to Community and Family, the sixth episode in Hope Lost Resilience, a Beaker Valley Shire Library production. You can find other episodes wherever you find your podcasts. The stories we've heard throughout this series reveal grief or loss for many. And while the scars are both physical and psychological, we've also heard how some of these experiences have transformed the ways people think about themselves, their ties and relationships with others, and their sense of safety in the world. Such stories of resilience take many forms, from how to make your own hand sanitizer and keep a business afloat in a crisis, to how to speak across vastly different ideological approaches to the pandemic, in order to preserve and nurture the relationships that are key to small communities. A huge thanks to all those stories you heard in this episode. Vivian Harris, Wendy Greeley, Ray Kennedy, Caitlin Malloy, David Bradford, Casey Hill and Lib. Thank you to everyone who shared their stories and contributed to interviews as part of the Beaker Valley Shire Library's Oral Histories Project, Talking Together. You can hear or read the full interviews, transcripts and more in the Beaker Valley Shire Library's catalogue. Go to library.beakervalley.newsouthwales.gov.au Or, if you're in the Beaker Valley, just pop into the library and ask the librarian. If this episode has brought up anything for you, you can reach Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're in the Beaker Valley and would like to connect with mental health services, you can call free 1800 011 511, 24 hours, 7 days. You can find full links to resources in the show notes. The music you heard was Rocks and Snow by David Ross MacDonald. You can find his work at davidrossmcdonald.bandcamp.com. The poem was Forests Have Their Own Time by Shona Hawks. 
The music was Thoughts of You by Dana Bulle, and the bush noises were recorded in and around the Bega Valley. We'd also like to thank the Candelo Roadshow Radio Hour, Community Radio 93.7 Edge FM, ABC Southeast New South Wales, Headspace Bega, Southeast Regional Health, and the Bega Valley Commemorative Civic Centre. As always, a huge additional thanks to our wonderful and amazing transcribers, Joe Osler, Alexander Masika, Trish Dive, and Janet Reynolds. Project Lead and Management, Linda Albertson and Sugi Deval. Extra Organisational Help, Anita Coakley, Carly McDonald, and Emma Woolley and Vanessa Barrett. Web Design, Natalie Martin-Remmett. Scripting and Podcast Production, Shona Hawks. And Principal Production, including Audio Editing and Sound Design, is by Craig Garrett. This program is part of the Bega Valley Shire Library's Talking Together Oral Histories Project, funded under the Joint Australian Government, New South Wales Government Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements 2018 through the New South Wales Reconstruction Authority. The views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of the New South Wales Government. See you next time, Bega Valley.